0: Scripture reading is out of Matthew 19, yeah, chapter 19, verse 23 through 26. Then Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I tell you, it's, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. All right, thank you. Hey, good morning everybody. Are we all right? You're the ones who were like, yeah, it's raining, I'm still going to church. Because everyone else is just like, I (laughs) can't. So, thank you. (laughs) Um, And, uh, okay, so it's... A little heavy today, a little heavy material. So it's good that there's less of you here. I'll get less emails. Um, so, um, so here we are. This is a passage which um, is probably um, the most well-known passage in Scripture. People quote it all over the Internet, <laughs> and mainly in, in angry comments on YouTube. Um, and, uh, and I, I think... We need to dive into this. I think we need to get some perspective. Um, and so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pray. Um, and then we're going to try to find like our place in this passage. Who are we? Who is Jesus talking to here? And like in the audience of Jesus, um, which characters are we? Because we tend to look at it and we're going to say, yeah, those, those rich people over there. Right? Okay. So let's, let's get our bearings. And uh, some of this is going to be, I'll, I'll do it. I'll tell you what. We'll get really heavy up front and then we'll lighten it up. And then we'll get heavy again at the end, okay? So, like, I'll give you, like, a break in the middle. Drink some Gatorade. Um, okay, let's pray, shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place. Thank you for these people. We come before you and we ask for wisdom. We ask for vision. We ask for imagination um, of a new future, of, uh, of your kingdom, uh, which <clears throat> it. We are well aware that our kingdoms um, are not what they should be, that our kingdoms fail, that our kingdoms uh, cannot meet the true needs of human beings. And so we ask you to reveal yours to us. Let us dwell in it now, live in it now, as citizens of your kingdom now. Let us understand that that we should be living for those things which will be in the present, um, to usher them in. Um, And I ask that you would, this morning, give us sort of a vision of how this looks. Um, Allow each of us to inspect our own hearts, to be honest with ourselves, um, and to not think of others, but to think of us when we read passages like this. Thank you, Father. In your name. Amen. Okay. First verse. Uh, Verse 23. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Uh, hold on a second, because he just, he's saying something new to his disciples, which means he just finished saying something else. Um, if you were here last week, then you know, if you weren't here last week, I'm going to fill you in now. Uh, Jesus was talking about these children, um, and how the kingdom of heaven is made up with, uh, uh, with, made up of, of, of children like these, um, low born, low status, um, fully dependent. Um, and then while, while he's talking about this, this rich man walks up. Um, and he says, what do I need to do to inherit the kingdom of God? And there is this back and forth, and eventually Jesus says, go and sell everything you have, and follow me. Uh, And it says, the man walked away sad, because he had, quote, great wealth. Um, And so, this happens, Jesus turns to his disciples, and he says this, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, when we read the scriptures, it is absolutely normal and, and good to try and find yourself in the story. Um, as you read the story, there are two sort of characters. One of them is talked about. One of them is hinted at, not really talked about in this particular passage. There is rich and there is poor. Um, oftentimes, we are trying to identify with a character in the story so that we can say, is this for me or is this not for me? This is one of those stories where pretty much everyone who reads it tends to identify with the poor and say, you know what? You're right. Those rich people over there. There are people in our city who are very wealthy who, when they read this passage, they think of like Jeff Bezos. I'm like, yeah, that Bezos guy. Come on. Um, And we all are pushing this off onto someone else. So rather than just um, assuming that you're going to find the right place in the story for you, let's find our bearings first um and by the way we do this is is honestly through statistics. And so some of you just set up and are like, all right, statistics, let's go, let's do this. Um so here we go. Um it's maybe boring for some of you. This is the, one of the most eye-opening things. Oopsie, I broke it. Here we go. Okay. Um one of the most eye-opening things to me. Okay. Eighty percent of the world population lives on less than ten dollars a day. Fifty percent of the world population lives on less than a day, and 15% of the world's population live in extreme poverty, which is less than $1.25 a day. I would think $10 a day is extreme poverty, but $1.25 a day is how we're counting extreme poverty. Um, That's a lot of people. Uh, One-fourth, a full quarter of all human beings alive today live without electricity. Ponder that for a second. You experience that once a year, When a hurricane rolls through and you're like, man, I wish they would get to, I can't even do anything. Uh, One fourth, one out of every four people on the planet earth lives without electricity. Um, Let's go a little farther. One billion children worldwide are living in poverty and 22,000 children die each day due to poverty. Today, 22,000 children will die simply because of poverty. Tomorrow, another 22,000 children will die because of poverty. Um, 805 million people worldwide do not have enough food to eat. Um, I remember Shane Claiborne, I saw him speak a few years back, and he... uh, um, he's like an activist and a writer and a, and, a, and, a, and a theologian. And he got up to speak and he held up that day's newspaper. I think it was the New York Times or something. And he held it up and it was two stories side by side on it. And one of them was a story about obesity rates in America hitting astronomical like, highs like they've never been. And then right next to it was another story about a famine sweeping through Africa and people starving to death. And like those two stories on accident ended up on the same front page paper. And it, it was shocking. Us, them. Okay? Let's go a little farther. Um, more than 750 million people lack adequate access to clean drinking water. 750 million people. Um, diarrhea and pneumonia take the lives of 2 million children every single year. fully preventable by a, a, a simple syrup that you can drink that is for sale in almost every gas station in our city. They literally are dying. Um, Let's go a little farther, shall we? It would take $60 billion annually to end extreme global poverty. And it sounds like a lot of money. However, it's only about 10% of America's annual military budget. Uh, It is less than one-fourth of the income of the top 100 billionaires alive today. Um, on top of that, hunger is the number one cause of death in the world, um, killing more than HIV, AIDS, malaria, and tuberculosis combined. All of the things that that we are fighting, the the, the most terrible diseases in the world, all those things. Put them all together, it's not even killing. It's not even killing as many people as just hunger is. And how many of us, every single day, actually struggle to eat less because there is too much food? Um, when you read this passage, you may be thinking of someone else. Um, right now, this very day, around the world, your brothers and sisters in Christ will gather and they will worship and they will gather in different parts of the world in, in, in mud huts, in the sunlight, outside, on a beach, by a river, in a hut. Um, in, a, in an old shack somewhere that somebody set up for them to meet in and, and they will all bring whatever food they have and they will serve each other and they will listen to each other's pains and fears and they will pray with each other. They will confess their sins. They will reconcile. Um, they will work for the healing of each other. Um, they, will, they will preach the word of God and they will listen and they will repent. They will worship. They will take communion. Um, they will hear the needs of the community around them and get together and work to bring healing because they understand who Jesus is, that Jesus is is king, and they're following Jesus, which leads to the restoration of all things, including souls and hearts and minds and lives. And when they gather, some of them will open up the book of Matthew to chapter 19. And as they read and as they study, they will stop and they will pray because they will read this passage and they will begin to pray for you you are the ones that will be on their mind, um, because you are rich—some of the richest people in human history. That is us, okay? And here's what's coming. Um, um, there, a Business Insider published a, an article earlier this year, and it says it's worth pointing out that the millennial generation—the one that we, the one that most of us are a part of—that complains about the price of housing and rent and in <laughs> avocados and. Um, it's a, the millennial generation is going to be the wealthiest generation ever that we've experienced. The wealth that currently exists in the world prim, and primarily possessed by baby boomers will one day be passed down to and inherited by their millennial children, and there are far fewer millennials than baby boomers. Um, this, uh, it's estimated here, let's finish this up, uh, it's estimated to be around $4 trillion that they will leave behind in the next 20 years in America. Um, And there are far more baby boomers than there are millennials. And so this wealth is going to flood into the economy, creating jobs and just flooding the general public with more money and more wealth than we actually have seen in a very long time. Um, And as much as you sit around and we can debate politics and this and that, what's it going to do? We are the wealthiest generation that has ever lived, and we will get more and more and more wealthy. So when you read the words of Jesus that says, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, We have to take this seriously. And we have to at least sit and ponder this and realize that that is us. And so today, when people gather around the world and they read this passage, and they gather in these third world countries and they are living in true poverty, and they are following Jesus with everything that they have, they are thinking of you when they read this passage, because they are concerned. And they should be. Because it is clear that we have a hard time hearing from God. The stronger our our nation gets, the more powerful it gets, the more wealth... Um, We amass. And scriptures are clear, it will be harder and harder and harder as this happens for you to hear and understand and follow God. What happens is we end up following other kings, we take part in communal sins, the communal sins of our nation, and we take part in them actively, and we claim that our side isn't doing it, but they are if we were actually being honest with ourselves, and we defend their injustices uh, and against the truly poor, the oppressed, the minority. Um, 85% of all executions in America, uh, and by the way, execution is something that, uh, the execution of prisoners I'm talking about. Um, the, the early Christians for the first three centuries, all of them unanimously condemned execution. Every single Christian father of the first three centuries condemned it as not in the will of God. 85% of all executions happen in the Bible belt where the largest masses of Christians are gathered and right now are gathering singing about Jesus. There was like five this week. Um, we aren't, in general, outraged or even motivated by the flippant taking of black lives or the lives of the unborn, or nor do we help to see every single human being as equal with ourselves. We struggle with this uh, intensely. Uh, we regularly allow God's creation and our world to fall apart because we want to live in earthly opulence and, and we could make decisions, us, human beings, Christians, followers of Jesus who understand that we were created and put here um, to guide the earth and the Hebrew word "dasha" in, 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 its, in its growth and its, its order and to guide it and to have dominion and, and exercise that dominion that God has and holding the delegated authority of God in this world and, and working for the good of creation and we are regularly rejecting the better decision which takes care of our creation because we want to live in opulence. Every single day we do this, again and again, every one of us. And so when we read these passages, It is not acceptable for you to think of other people. You think of you. You are wealthy. I would argue that not a single person that will ever hear this sermon that I am preaching right now, not a single poor person will hear it. Here's how I know this. We are in a neighborhood that poor people no longer live in. Over the last 10 years, they've pretty much all been pushed out. Um, The only other way you would hear this sermon is if you drove here, and if you're poor, you're probably not doing that. Um, or you have a, you're listening to the podcast, which means you have a smartphone, which means you have a monthly payment and you spend a thousand dollars on it, which means you probably have an electric bill at home and a job and a place to store all of your electronics. It is likely that no poor person will ever hear this sermon, but that's fine. I'm talking to you. I'm talking to me. Um let's keep going, shall we? Now that now that we're all feeling chipper. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through a, the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, um, okay, so the camel was the largest animal that they knew of probably in their day. Um, unless you're like in the Roman military, you wouldn't have seen like an elephant during the conquest of, of other parts of Asia and stuff. Um, so you're The largest largest animal they can mention, it's camel. The smallest opening that they can imagine um, is likely the head of a needle. Um, There's two ways that this passage has been interpreted. Um, So I'm going to start with sort of a a contextual way that people have been interpreting it. Um, And uh, I'll I'll just lay it out real quick for you. So there was two gates um, on the city. There was a large gate huge gate, like two or three stories. This is the eastern gate in Jerusalem, large enough for lots of people to go through. Um, and then there was a smaller gate. The large gates were open during the day, business, people coming and going, offering sacrifices at the temple and all that. Um, and the evening, as, as the sun goes down, they close the gates to keep out marauders and, and all kinds of stuff. Um, and then they have a small gate on the side, and you would use that gate at night, um, and they would put a door on it, and there would be other entrances as well. And so here's one of them, very, very tiny. And um, um, basically, one of the ways that people interpret this passage is they say, well, the eye of the needle is referring to the tiny gate. And so someone arrives at the the wall with a camel. They're obviously rich, because they have a a camel, right? I mean, I can't afford a camel. Um, and then it's loaded up with stuff, and they can't, you can't walk a camel through this thing, so you're going to kneel it down, and you're going to take all the stuff off, and you're going to load it through, and then you're going to go through, and the camel's going to kind of go through on its knees, although I seriously doubt that. Um, now, how many of you, so like, th- th- then they call it, so they say, they say when Jesus says, uh, it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle, he's specifically talking about a gate, right? How many of you have, how many of you have heard this interpretation? Okay. Don't want to burst your bubble. There's literally no evidence that that is the correct way to interpret this passage. Um, The first time we ever hear this interpretation mentioned is the ninth century. About a thousand years after the time of Christ. Um, And yes, there was a large gate. And yes, there was a small gate. There is zero evidence that that was ever called the eye of the needle. Um, In fact, um, the first person to argue that Jesus was talking about a tiny gate was a scholar, likely a wealthy scholar. Are you beginning to uh, put it together about why they may need a different interpretation? Um, And they've come up with a clever way to make it easier to sort of understand this teaching. Um, Because by and large, um, there have been large groups of Christianity throughout history that have been the most wealthiest, most powerful people. And they claim Christianity. Um, and so passages like this rub up against them and they have to explain them away sometimes. But there is literally zero evidence that this happened. Plus, honestly, a camel's not getting through that. Okay, um, and, and so oftentimes, this is what we do. We need things to sound different. It's like, saying, it's like saying, it's easier for a Chevy Suburban to fit in a matchbox. And then for someone to come along and say, well, when he wrote that, um, yes, it sounds very Difficult, but a matchbox is actually referring to a tiny garage around the side, and you can fit it in that garage. But you just got to be careful, okay? You're just back in and use the cameras. Back it in very slowly, okay? And when it beeps, you stop, okay? Now, um, this is what we're doing—trying to explain this away. This was supposed to hit very hard. Um, I would argue this is rabbinical um, hyperbole. There are five or six different places where different rabbis have actually used this same image of a camel going through the eye of a needle. I'll show you one of them. And you can Google the rest. And some of them are brilliant. Here's one from a Jewish midrash from the Song of Songs. It's it's like a commentary and a a thought-provoking sort of commentary on on a passage. Um, The Holy One said, Open for me a door as big as a needle's eye, and I will open for you a door through which may enter tents and camels. And so it's, it's sort of like these, uh, this wisdom tradition of of, uh, of, of thought provoking. It's like a thought experiment, right? Um, very rabbinical, very much in line with the things that Jesus did all the time. Um, and he's taking part in the, in the traditions of his day. Um, when he says this, when he says it's really hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God, you um, would be easier to squeeze a, a camel through the eye of a needle. Um, this would have been intensely shocking to the early Um, Jewish people of that day. Why? Um, That's an important question. Uh, The reason this would have been shocking is simply because of their theology of how they viewed wealth. Um, In the first century, in the second temple uh, Jewish period, and a long time before that, um, it was generally believed that people were wealthy because God had favor on them. That someone who was pious, lived a holy life, kept the law, God would, you know, God owns the cattle on a thousand hill, right? Psalms, and, 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 he, and he'll, he'll give you some of those cattle, right? Like he'll, he'll help you to thrive. Um, and they were raised being taught, and every one of the disciples as well are raised being taught. Some people are rich because God has shown favor and blessing upon them. They have done things right. And if you were doing right, you also would have wealth um, and privilege. But since you haven't been, you don't. And, and we're cause, it's, it's this sort of spiritual oppression thing, all right? So the disciples believe this. Um, this is how they thought. We may hear this and we may say, well, that sounds crazy. People don't believe that anymore. And I would point out that a lot of Christians actually do believe this. And they do think this way. You just have to show them where they think this way. Um, there is a, uh, a study by Washington Post and the Kaiser Family Foundation, they found that 53% of white evangelical Protestants blamed poverty on lack of effort. It's a moral problem. They're lazy. Right? Um, I was raised thinking this as well. Uh, and there is... Uh, let's go a little farther down this. Um, by more than two to one, atheists, agnostics, and non-religious said difficult circumstances are more to blame than lack of effort. Um, And so then you have, uh, they they went to some people, some prominent evangelical leaders, and asked them, why do Christians think this way? Um, The head of the the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, um, Albert Moeller, he responds and says this, there is a strong Christian impulse to understand poverty as deeply rooted in morality. Often, as the Bible makes clear, says him, "um, in unwillingness to work in bad financial decisions or in broken family structures. So... Prominent evangelical, probably one of, the, one of the most prominent evangelicals. Now, I disagree with him. I don't disassociate from him. Okay? That's not how my, my faith works. I claim to be an evangelical as well. Let me shock some of you. I do. Um, and I want to be part of the solution. Okay? I fully disagree with the statement. I don't believe that poverty is, uh, is, is caused by immorality, by... Um, by unwillingness to work um, and simply bad financial decisions and broken family structures. I believe those things can lead to poverty. If I go gamble all my money away, it's a really stupid choice. I could end up very poor. That doesn't mean that when I look at somebody who is poor, I can assume they gambled all their money away or made bad decisions or abandoned their family. Um, There are actual things and systems that contribute to the suffering of human beings everywhere. And oftentimes we choose not to see them and we take part in them. And so in some sense, in many senses, we are a part of this. We are a part of a system that oftentimes causes poverty. And we're going to get into that a little later. Uh, Most of us have a lot in common with the ancient Jewish people in the sense of them thinking people are rich because they were holy and good and godly and so now they're rich. And people are poor because they're ungodly. There are ungodly poor and there are godly poor. There are ungodly rich and there are godly rich. Okay? Um, If 85% of the world is incredibly poor, we are basically saying that we're the 15% who are super holy here in America. We know that's not true. We know we struggle with immoralities they will never deal with. Um, when Jesus says what he says about wealth, I mean, when, when, we, say, when we say oftentimes, and we agree oftentimes with, with these, the, the Jewish thought that people are wealthy because they're blessed by God, um, it's funny because Jesus actually says that that the more money you have, the more excess you have, the actual harder it is to hear and follow Jesus. He 's saying it's not an advantage. it makes it more difficult. Ponder with me, if you will, the Israelites in the wilderness and their story, the way that they tell it. They are in the wilderness, they have nothing. And God says, I will lead you. I will be a, a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud, uh, cloud during the day. What about when we get, get hungry? I will rain down food from heaven. I will provide fowl for you to eat. I will make water come out of rocks. Imagine how much more faith they would have and how much more uh, uh, liable they would be to follow the teachings of God than, than you and I are. And they were. They, they regularly, the, you know what happens? Jesus tells them, uh, uh, Yahweh tells them um, all the time, he says, when you get, in the book of Deuteronomy, when you get into the land I have promised to give you, be very careful. You will live in houses you did not build. You will have wells you did not dig. You will have vineyards you did not plant. And in all of this wealth and opulence, you will forget me. And they're like, no, we won't. And every time they find their way home again, they forget God and they chase other idols. So when Jesus says this, all he has to do is look back at the track record of Israel and say, when they were in the desert and reliance upon me, they were able to follow. When they were living in opulence and excess, it became very, very difficult. Sometimes they actually did it. There was good kings like Josiah, and they did it. Most of the time, it was exceedingly difficult. Let's go a little farther. When the disciples heard this, They were greatly astonished and asked who then can be saved. Why are they asking that question? Because they have always been told that the most godly people are the wealthy. They are the most godly people. And so for Jesus to say, it's really hard for wealthy people to be a part of the kingdom of God. It's it's harder for a camel. It's easier for a camel to squeeze through. I have a needle than for wealthy people um, to be a part of the kingdom of God. They're just sitting there with their mouths open like, what are you talking about? If they can't be saved, then who can be saved? There's a reason when Jesus, his very beginning of his ministry, he goes to the mount where he preaches the sermon on the Mount, and he gathers everyone. He lays and sets them out on this huge field. All these peasants come and they gather around and they sit down. And he says, he sat down and he began to teach them. And the first words out of his mouth are, he looks around, he says, blessed are the poor. And you can imagine this collective gasp going over the audience. Because no one had ever said this before. Everyone had always said, blessed are the rich. We know this. And if you work really hard and you're pious, you can be wealthy too. No, he said, blessed are the poor. And I'm sure someone in the back yells, blessed are the rich. He says, yeah, but blessed are the poor too. And none of this would have likely made any sense at first. And then he says, blessed are those who suffer. No, no, no. That was another sign that you weren't in God's favor. Blessed are those who are hungry and thirst for righteousness. They've all been told their whole life they weren't good enough. Like, what Jesus is doing is taking everything that they thought about the world and how it works and flipping it all upside down. And there are certain people that got this. Like I said, there are righteous wealthy and there are unrighteous wealthy. Um, even in the Bible, in the New Testament, there are people that got this. I want to introduce you to someone. Her name is Joanna. Joanna. Now, um, Joanna, you may, you may have read about her uh, in Luke, I believe it was, ch- let's see, chapter 24, where she is one of the first women at the tomb to see the empty tomb and recognize Jesus is risen to run and make the proclamation of the resurrection. Um, the first ever Easter sermon was preached by a woman. Um, now, um, so... We know who this woman was. She followed Jesus. Um, the book of um, Luke earlier on describes this, how, the, how Jesus' disciples were ordered. So Jesus had 12 disciples um, uh, right directly around him. And then outside there was an outer ring of 72 disciples. Um, and then outside of that, um, I drew a blank this morning. If it was 500 or 5,000, I want to say, honestly, 5,000. But I know that was, there's 500 in 5,000, so I'm going to say 500. 500 disciples around that. Now, um, this, is, these, this is how sort of the structure of Jesus' ministry was. And the teaching moves outward from there. Um, and Joanna was one of sort of the second ring of disciples of Jesus. Um, yes, he had female disciples following him. By the way, no other rabbi did Okay, point that out. Um, Now, uh, Luke chapter eight, verse three says this. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, uh, and many others, those poor people, "um, who provided for them out of their means. So these two women in particular are mentioned. And it says, these two women, Joanna and Susanna, funded Jesus' ministry. Um, Maybe you've never heard that. Yes, Jesus' ministry of salvation to the world was funded by wealthy women. Now, yeah, that's right. Now, where did they get the money? Great question. One of my favorite questions. Um, it says here uh, in Luke chapter 8 that, that Joanna was the wife of Cusa. And it also says that Cusa was Herod's household manager. Herod, the half-Jewish king um, over Israel at the time. Um, Joanna was Jewish, uh, married to Cusa, who's managing Herod's household. Now, um, in that day, there was a spice called balsam. I we're going to, this is all from Josephus now. There was a spice called balsam. Um, this spice was considered, uh, the word we use today is an aphrodisiac, all right? Um, now, um, this spice balsam, don't worry, this is going somewhere important. Um, I'm not like, I'm not trying to sell stuff, do you hear? Um, now, this spice balsam, uh, it was supposedly aroused you sexually. Uh, this guy Strabo, a, a, a Roman historian, actually, I'll quote him. He says, one drop of balsam behind a woman's ear turns a man wild with lust at a hundred paces. That's what he writes, okay? Big stuff, all right? Big market for balsam, okay? It is first century Viagra. That's what it is. Now, um, balsam was made from the roots and the fruit of the camphora tree. The camphora tree, uh, there wasn't a lot of them, uh, and they were every, They were all throughout the Roman Empire. There wasn't a lot of them, though. Herod, at some point, sends out a decree because it turns out that in in, in this time period, right before Jesus comes on the scene, we have records that show that balsam, uh, that spice, was selling for the equivalent, a thimbleful was selling for the equivalent of a million dollars, a thimbleful today, okay? A lot of money. And Herod says, I'm going to get into the balsam market. And he sends out a decree saying, hey, everyone, I now own every camphor tree in the Roman Empire, Okay, he now owns all of them. That's all he has to do. It was simple. It was, it was easier back then. Um, and so he sends out this decree and he now owns all of it. Okay. And, uh, and then from Josephus, we are told, Cusa uh, was put in charge of, all of, of managing all of those camphor trees. So, Jesus' salvation ministry to the world was funded by first century Viagra, that was funneled from King Herod into Cusa, whose wife became a rebellious follower of Jesus, who ended up establishing another empire in the empire of Rome. And she takes her husband's money from King Herod to fund Jesus, who eventually causes a movement that ends up overthrowing that entire empire. Strong woman, all right? Now, this this woman got it. She understands it. And we're going to get to what it is in just a minute. I want to tell you about somebody else. There's this guy. um, Let's see. His name is Erastus. He is mentioned in Romans chapter 16, verse 23. Um, He, when Paul is writing from Corinth, Paul wrote the letter to Rome. uh, It's called Romans. Uh, He wrote it from the city of Corinth. And you picture him sitting around in a sort of courtyard with a bunch of people with him. And he's writing these letters. And they're all sort of collectively coming up with ideas of how to structure this thing. And just make it like um, a beautiful uh, tome, right, like it's, it's supposed to, prose was a huge deal back then, um, being, being a rhetorician and, and Paul was a great, was really good at rhetoric and Erastus was one of the people sitting around with Paul, uh, we notice because Paul actually says, oh, Erastus says hello, alright, so Erastus is there talking, um, so Erastus was in Corinth and, and, and Romans 16.23 tells us that Erastus was um, uh, the director of public works in the Roman city of Corinth Um. And which means he's high up, he's wealthy, okay? To gather with the Christians, he is giving up a lot of his status to, to serve the Christians, which again, if you've been here long enough, you've heard status is the most important thing in their minds in the first century. And he's using his money to fund his church. He's sitting around with Paul, probably funding Paul's missionary journeys. Um, and Paul's there, and he, he's, he's working in the church alongside slaves and women and the poor and working with them. Uh, if you flip to Acts chapter 19, he's referred to as a helper alongside Timothy, uh, who was a lowly Greek convert, right? He's young, okay? Um, he, it says Paul sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Mado- Ma- Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. Now, we know that Erastus was really super. Super, super, super wealthy, okay? How do we know this? Because if you go to the city of Corinth today, you can still see his name just written on crap laying around. Just, this, this sign basically says this building was funded by Erastus. This guy was loaded. Um, and he's a lot like Paul in the sense that sometimes Paul used his status to move people who were of higher status who would listen to him, and then when Paul is around lower status people, he rejects it, and he actually learned to be a, a tent maker from the city of Tarsus. Who we know that was the lowest position; they, those they were considered scum, according to this guy named Chrysostom. Like they were scum, the tent makers of, of Tarsus. Paul becomes one of them. There are times when Paul uses what he has. Um, a Roman, he's a Roman citizen. There's times where he uses that to sway the Romans. There are times where he rejects his Roman citizenship to liken himself to the poor and gather with women down by the river in the city of Philippi and teach them the scriptures. Here's the whole thing about all of these characters in the scriptures something that they understood about Christ absolutely changed how they interacted with everything in the world. And what ends up happening to the early Christians is that everything that they have power and sway over, whether it is a decision that they can make, whether it is money or status or anything, they, use, they realize that what they have is not theirs. They have it on loan through the delegated authority of God. And as long as it is in their hands, it will be used for the kingdom of God. And so if you have high status or privilege, that is to be used for the glory of God. Some somehow to sway other people who are equal with you. And then there are other times where it should absolutely be rejected and given up so that you can liken yourselves to those below you. The early Christians recognized nothing that they possessed was actually theirs. It was passing through their hands um, as if they were the employees and the delegated authority in this world to help set things right again, as, as, we, are, as we are described it should be in, in books like Genesis, where this beautiful picture is painted um, of the, the cosmic order, God, us, um, the images of God, um, given his delegated authority to have dominion over and rule over and bring about, read Psalm 72. You're going to read about the job of a king, which is to bring justice and, and, and um, to take care of the lowly and the injured. There's so, that's why there's so many laws in the Old Testament about taking care of animals. Like it, It's all part of it. We are are put here to live in a specific way. Nothing that you have is yours. It is passing through your hands. And here's a fact. As we read these ancient passages, we have to keep in mind, um, scarcity and poverty are human inventions. They don't really belong here. We invented them. God created us and put us in a world with plenty to provide for everyone. That is the world God put us in. You have what you need. And oftentimes we think, well, I don't have this. The things that we actually need, we are given. Relationships and love and mercy. Um, Vocation. Um, Image of God. All of it. Everything that you need is given to you. These other things. Uh, When the world is made whole, when mankind is ruled directly by God, when the world is as it should be, there will be more, not less than we need. We create our problems. Um, Scarcity is and continues to be a human invention. God created, again, his world with with more than enough for all. Poverty is a byproduct of human tampering with God's created order. Idolatry, um, deciding to live um, in ways that are are not in sync with how we were created to be. Um, The greedy in the kingdoms of this world have an advantage, That is something you have to realize. Human kingdoms are set up so that the greedy, the most greedy, have the most advantage. In the kingdom of God, however, greed is not an advantage. It is a disadvantage that makes you unable to hear the king. Everything that we have belongs to the king. You are here on delegated authority, put here, created in the image of God, put here to use it to bring about the growth of and the order and the reconciliation and restoration of all things to God. When we preach the gospel, we're not just trying to get people to mentally ascend to an idea and pray a prayer. We are trying to get people, people's hearts to be renewed so that as Paul says, they will not conform to the patterns of this world any longer. That they will, um, they will understand who God is, understand who they are, um, that they will repent, which means change everything. And that they will, pick up the vocation they were created to have. And the more and more people that do this, the world should get more and more at peace and generous. But sadly, what we have seen is that as our particular theological movement has grown and progressed over the years, it has grown crooked and oftentimes has worked to do just the opposite of what we're here to do. Uh, I think I, th- I think God is calling us out of it all, to repent fully, um, to reform our minds and go back to the very beginning again. Um, nothing is yours; it belongs to the one who placed it in your hands. The more you think belongs to you, the harder it is to use it for God's purposes. That is the key. Um, why don't we take communion? A uh, communion service—you guys can take the elements and spread around the room. Um, communion is the picture of the whole thing; it's how it works. It's uh, it's the body of Christ broken for you and poured out for you, for your reconciliation, for your restoration. Um, and so, why don't we take some time and ponder all of this? If there's if there's some repentance that needs to be made, if there's some confession, you are you. Spend some time with some people around you, some, some loved ones, and, and confess with them. If you need prayer, through um, so these doors on the left. Um, you can head right over there, and, and there'll be somebody in there to pray with you. Um, but communion, this is something we do every week that binds us together and puts us back on mission and gives us a reminder of what we're here for. Um, there's one table, and we all, whether you consider yourself struggling or wealthy, we come to the table. Whether you consider yourself holy and pious or a failure, and a a, a terrible sinner. We all come to the same table, we bring what we have, we all receive the same. The body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ poured out for you. So that you could receive a new heart, mind, and vocation once again. And so let's take some time, and let's pray. And, uh, And then we'll take some time in communion, shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. Make us whole. Help us to repent fully. Give us a a new understanding. Give us new purpose. Um, Help us to reject the things that uh, the world is is calling out for us to follow. Help us to pick up our, our true vocation once more. In your name. Amen. Take some time. Talk to Jesus.